Hebrews 3, Sin and Judgment. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Amen. Our series in the New Testament, Sin and Judgment series, brings us to Hebrews 3, and this is the second of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Actually, chapters 3 and 4 encompass a lengthy warning. Chapters 3 and 4, especially from 3.6 to 4.13, 3.6 to 4.13, a lengthy warning. Now, what is this warning? It is a warning not to be like the sons of Israel who were under Moses in the wilderness after they departed from Egypt and before they entered the land of Canaan. This section, chapters 3 and 4, treats them. It deals with them and uses them as a comparison for us. The children of Israel, 
the people that Moses led out of Egypt and at the border of the land of Canaan. And that generation lived for 40 years in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. That is the example, that is the paradigm, that is the type and example that the apostle uses to explain some truths to us in the Christian life. This paradigm or this example that the apostle uses in chapters 3 and 4 is a very fundamental and very crucial paradigm in Scripture. The exodus from Egypt is used spiritually to be an indication of our release from sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. These statements are taken from the book of Exodus, chapters 12 and 13, when the Passover festival was instituted. Well, why did they institute that? As a type and as an example of the need for us to be redeemed from sin, as they needed to be redeemed from Egyptian bondage. And who is our Redeemer? Who will deliver us from that bondage to sin? Christ. Christ and only Christ. Moses preached Christ. We preach Christ. The Apostle preaches Christ. Moses preached the death and resurrection of Christ. Hebrews 11.26 says, Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ is the death of Christ, his shame and humiliation leading to his crucifixion. That reproach Moses preached, he believed it, and that's what he taught his own generation. That's what he wrote in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, known as the book of Moses or the books of Moses or the law of Moses. In that law, which is also called the law of the Lord, what Moses wrote, the Lord wrote, because Moses was a true prophet and wrote those words. What did Moses emphasize by the word of the Lord? He emphasized what is a continual, generational, perpetual problem. And that is this. Simply because God did some good things for Israel out of Egypt and in the wilderness, and even in the conquest of Canaan, simply because God did good things for them, for their benefit, it does not mean that they are true believers, that they were saved, and that they all went to heaven. It doesn't mean that. God is very generous, very beneficent, very kind to all people, many people, even people who visibly appear to be a part of the people of God. He does many good things for them. The sons of Israel, the nation under Moses, is an example of how this is the case throughout every generation. And even in our generation, this is the point, the apostle, the fundamental point he's making in chapter 3. In chapter 3, his point is, just because 
you are in the local church. Just because you are in the visible church, just because you profess Christ, it doesn't mean you actually are saved and know Christ. It doesn't mean your salvation is secure and that you are going to heaven. It doesn't mean that. This is what nobody wants to hear. Individually, nobody wants to hear it. And corporately, corporately, nobody wants to hear it. Preachers, pastors, refuse to preach that. They refuse to say, listen, congregation, we have a thousand people sitting here, but the Bible teaches that only a remnant, only a few of the thousand, maybe 10, maybe 100, maybe 150, 176, of youth 1,000 are true believers. The rest of you are pretending. The rest of you are goats. The rest of you have hard hearts. The preachers don't say that. They don't preach that. Because they know if they were to preach it, that their number would go from 1,000 and drop dramatically in that local church. And they don't want that to happen because they want the people coming and they want the money coming, they want the fame, which leads to fortune, and with the fortune, they can have fun. That's what they want. They want to preach ecumenicalism, universalism, they want to preach and please men, rather than being a slave of Christ, Galatians 1.10. The apostle used to be a man-pleaser, but now he is a pleaser of Christ. That's why he preaches what nobody wants to hear, even if it's contained in the New Testament, where people say the character of God and the method of God, the practice of God, is different, very different from the Old Testament. We see it's not the case. We have seen that since our series in the book of Matthew, and we will continue to see it in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 3. Let's begin at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Firstly, at the beginning, and as well at the end of chapter 4, the last paragraph of chapter 4, 414 to 16, he begins with a word of encouragement. And then predominantly in chapters 3 and 4, he has a long, serious, solemn warning. And what is the encouragement? He calls us holy brethren. He calls us holy brethren, holy brothers in the family of God. Holy in that we have been set apart. Now, why would he address them as holy brethren if at the same time he's warning them? Because what the Bible does in many places is to treat the visible church with charity. To treat the visible church, the people who are actually assembling, as though they are believers to, so that God might endear himself to those who are listening. He wants there to be a true, spiritual, loving, intimate relationship between God and the people, and between those who are preaching 
and the people. This is what we desire. This is what we want. That's why at the beginning of many letters of the Apostle Paul, he calls the people who are receiving his letter, he calls them saints. He calls them beloved. He expresses how he is thankful for them. But at the same time, as we shall see, just because the Apostle calls them holy brethren, it doesn't mean that every single one who hears those words is truly a holy brother, sanctified, set apart, a saint in Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean that. For example, when soldiers, when soldiers of a country are referring to each other, sometimes they'll call each other brothers. Brother, brother, brother. And visibly, that is the case. But ultimately, they don't know that every man in the same barrack is going to be a faithful brother because one of them might defect and go to the enemy side. One of them might say, no, 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 I don't really believe any of this. And besides, I want to save my skin, so I'm going to go to the other side because they're winning. So he will defect and go to the other side. So was he a true brother of that nation? Was he a true brother of that regiment or that in the barracks, in that unit? No. Well, that's what the Bible is doing. We address each other as brothers, brothers, sisters, beloved, like that, in the family of God, but it may not be the case. So, how is it that we are holy brethren? We are partakers of a heavenly calling. We are true partakers of a heavenly calling. Partaking of a heavenly calling, he mentions partaking again in verse 14, partakers of Christ. If it's true of us, then we do have the heavenly calling really evident within our life, in our soul. Verse 14, we are true partakers of Christ. He puts a condition in verse 14. He says, if we hold fast, but what if we don't hold fast from beginning until the end? Then we are not a true partaker. Note as well in verse 1 that the holy brethren who are partakers, they have their sights on heaven. They keep their eyes on the things above, not on the things below. They don't live for the world, the flesh, and the devil, but they live for heaven. They seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you. Matthew six thirty-three. The wilderness generation and most people don't do that. They are friends, they are adulteresses, James 4, 4, adulteresses whose friendship is with the world and whose hostility is toward God. They are enemies of God and friends of the world. But in this case, we're not that way. Not true believers. We have a heavenly 
calling and heavenly aspirations. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He'll tell us again in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, to consider Jesus, who endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Here again, why consider Jesus? Because the people are saying they believe in Jesus. The people are saying they are Christians. The people are saying they are believers. They're going to heaven. They're saved. They've done what it takes to be a child of God. But if that's the case, we have to be faithful as he was faithful. He will speak of his faithfulness in verses 1 to 5. He says, Jesus was an apostle and high priest of our confession. He was an apostle. Apostle is a messenger. He was sent from heaven to the earth as the messenger of God. Do we really believe that he came from heaven, he descended from heaven, and then he ascended back up to heaven, and he spoke the words of God? If we believe he spoke the words of God, we'll believe his words and act accordingly. Further, high priest of our confession. The high priest of our confession. Our confession of faith is not in believing in any sinful priest, but a sinless priest. And that sinless priest who accomplished our salvation. Chapter 7, Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. Hebrews 7, 26. This is our unique, special priest, unlike any earthly priest, even the Aaronic priest in the tribe of Levi. 7, 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect Forever. Further, chapter 10, chapter 10, 10, 19 to 25, 10, 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christ is 
the perfect, sinless high priest of our confession. If he was faithful till the very end, without sin, spotless, and suffered on our behalf, shouldn't we live for him? Live like him and live for him? Then his faithfulness was a superior faithfulness. Of course, Moses was faithful, and many of the saints of the scriptures and throughout history were faithful. But who was supremely faithful, spotlessly faithful? Christ himself. He is our ultimate example. Verse 2, he was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Christ was faithful to the Father who appointed him to be our apostle and our high priest. He was faithful to God the Father, as Moses also was in all his house. Moses, too, was faithful. Moses, too, endured until the end. Moses was a true believer until the day he died. He was saved. Contrary to some commentators, heretics, who say Moses was an unbeliever. No, Moses is in contrast to the wilderness generation. Moses was saved. The wilderness generation was unsaved. Verse 3, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Christ actually has more glory than Moses. Why? Because Christ is the builder of the house or builder of the household. Moses is within the house. We are also within the house. But the builder of the house is Christ and ultimately God himself. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So then, whether it's Moses or an apostle or any one of us, we have, in a sense, some faithfulness that needs to be commended and regarded. It should be honored and esteemed, but not in comparison to Christ. Christ is superior to Moses, the prophets, and the apostles, and any other saint. Christ is. Why is this necessary to assert? It's necessary to assert because throughout history, even in the New Testament, in the first century, the apostle is experiencing it himself. This is why he needs to preach it. It's even evident in our day. There are cults who put undue attention on Moses and then they misinterpret Moses 
And when they misinterpret Moses, they undermine Christ and the gospel of the grace of Christ. They undermine Christ by misunderstanding Moses. They say Moses believed a certain way, practiced a certain thing, taught a certain gospel, but they are wrong. Moses never supplanted Christ. In fact, Moses preached Christ, even the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. First, that he did preach Christ. It says in verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses was faithful. And by the way, Numbers chapter 12 highlights the faithfulness of Moses. If we were to go to one place, there are many places, but one place when Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses and received the wrath of God for doing so, Moses is commended by God in a way that no one has ever been commended since that time. Moses was faithful to God, and God himself declared it when he rebuked Miriam and Aaron. So Moses was faithful. Faithful how? As a servant. In contrast, verse 6, Christ is a son, the Son of God, the Son of God with power, to declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, 1 to 5. Christ is a Son, so superior. But Moses, as a servant, and as a servant of Christ, what did he do? We said he preached Christ and even the death of Christ. Verse 5 says, He was a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses was a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. What was it that he knew and believed and that he preached to the people? Hebrews 11.26 tells us. Hebrews 11.26. In explaining the faithfulness of Moses, he says, 11.26, Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches. What is the reproach of Christ? It's the death of Christ, which is a reproach because it's shameful, it's humiliating, it's a crucifixion. He was torn, battered, and bruised. Chapter 13 of Hebrews proves this. Chapter 13, 13, 11, 13, 11 to 14. Hebrews 13, 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned 
outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. There were sacrifices that were burned outside the camp of Israel. Why? Because Christ would be sacrificed outside the gate of the city. His sacrifice means our redemption. The animal sacrifice only typified, only illustrated the coming sacrifice of Christ. And Moses preached that to the people because he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches. And then in 1313, he says, let's go outside the camp bearing his reproach. Remember, Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. We are supposed to take up our cross daily, carry our cross, bear his reproach. He died carrying the cross. We ought to be ready to die bearing the cross. The reproach is the cross. Why is this important to note? Because false teachers say Moses preached a different gospel. Moses preached good news of a different kind, of a different sort. Moses believed in the animal sacrifices to forgive sin. And that's what he preached to the people. Moses believed that just as long as he believed in the miracles and that the people would be delivered out of Egypt, there would be salvation. Moses believed that the sea would be split and that was his salvation. But Moses did not know about the death of Christ. Moses did not preach the death of Christ. Moses believed other things and he taught the people to believe other things to be saved. No, according to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, Galatians 1, 6 to 10, if Moses preached anything but the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the gospel, it would be a heresy deserving a curse forever. A heresy deserving a curse forever. The death and resurrection of Christ is the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. So Moses had to preach that gospel. We all must believe that gospel. And this is the gospel that the wilderness generation refused. They repudiated this gospel. They despised the idea that the Christ, their Messiah, would have to die for their sins because they lived for this world and they didn't care about the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. They just wanted to eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. 
That's all they wanted. They only cared about the things of the world. But Christ, verse 6, Hebrews 3, 6, what was he? It says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Christ is our example, and he is everyone's example, because he says that he was faithful over his house, whose house we are. We are the house of Christ. We are the household of Christ. And Christ was a son, the son of God, over us. If he was the perfect example over us, it's also over Moses. Because Moses was also in the house of Christ or in the household of Christ. Christ, it's the only way that we could ever be saved. Only him. But how are we going to manifest whether we truly believe in him. In 3.6 to 3.19, it is shown by continual faithfulness which leads to obedience. Continual faithfulness and obedience. If there is hardness of heart, if there is falling away, if there is unbelief, if there is disobedience, these are indications that the individual does not believe in Christ. How do we know that? Well, these are the terms he uses in terms of enduring until the end, having faith, believing, obeying, not falling away, these are the words he's going to use here now. 3.6. He says, We are of the household of Christ. Verse 6. That is true of us. If. He doesn't say, no matter what. He doesn't say, that you have it and lose it. He says, we are a part of his house if. If we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. <clears throat> if we do not hold fast, then we are not a part of his house. If we do hold fast, we are a part of his house. There is a difficulty with the manuscripts in verse 6, but not in verse 14. Verse 14 also says, If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Verse 14, they all say, all the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament say, firm until the end. And of course, in verse 6, he wouldn't be meaning if we hold fast temporarily because his whole warning 
here is to hold fast permanently. Whether he says it twice, firm until the end or not, in our chapter is irrelevant. We know that's what he means. He, he means that, and he clearly means it. Now, this confidence and boast of hope that should be held fast until the end, who is the deliveryman? Who is the, the speaker? Verse 7. Ultimately, it's not Moses, nor is it David. Though, verses 7 to 11 are a citation from Psalm 95, 7 to 11. Verses 7 to 11 here are quoting Psalm 95, 7 to 11. And that was authored by David, King David. Though David is the prophet who writes it, just as we've been saying Moses, Moses was the prophet who wrote it, who wrote Genesis to Deuteronomy. The apostle is drawing attention to God himself, to the Holy Spirit of God. Because when we reject the word of the prophet, the word of the apostle, the word of the holy prophet, the word of the holy apostle, we are actually rejecting the word of the Holy Spirit of God. And that is more serious and more detrimental to our soul than simply rejecting the word of a man. We shouldn't do it because it's a true prophet of God. But people do it anyways. So consider the words here, not on the horizontal human level, but on the divine level. He says here in 3.7, just as the Holy Spirit says. What does he say now? In the time of David, which would be four to five hundred years after the time of Moses, Moses experienced the, the heartache, the discouragement, the consternation, having to deal with the wicked people of Israel in the wilderness. David uses that by the Holy Spirit as an example not to be that way in his own generation to the people who are his contemporaries. Verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as they swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to pay attention. Today is the day to be alert. Today is the day to hear 
to comprehend and then obey what we hear today. That's the warning. If you hear his voice, and we are, what should we not do? Not harden your hearts. Don't say, I don't like that. Don't say, well, that's not what I believe. Don't say, well, I don't want to do that. Don't say, well, that's what he says, when it's plainly here in the Scripture. Do not harden your hearts, because the Spirit is speaking. So who did harden the heart? Who did experience the wrath of God? It says in verse 8, as when they provoked me. They angered God. They provoked God. Under Moses, after they had seen so many miracles, so many miracles, and even the parting of the Red Sea. And in the wilderness, for 40 years, they were experiencing miracles almost every day. Or we could say, on the sixth day of the week, they would get twice as much. And so on the seventh day, when they were not supposed to collect the manna, they were sustained, not with a miracle, but with the result of a miracle, on the Sabbath day. So every day, they had evidence of the miraculous power of God, yet they continually provoked God. It says in verse 9, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. They had no qualms. It didn't bother them day after day to test God, to tempt God, to say, where is the Lord? Is the Lord in our midst? Does the Lord really care for us? Why do we have to eat this manna all the time? Where's the water? We need water. What about Moses? Moses, where is the meat? We remember all the, the vegetables we used to eat in Egypt, the meat and the vegetables in Egypt, the fish we used to eat in Egypt. But no, there's nothing in this wilderness but this manna. They said things like this, right? They're not against Moses. Their real enemy is God, not Moses. Because that's why he's saying, provoked me, tried me, tested me, saw my works. And the my here is God speaking. They were actually against God. Verse 10. Therefore I was angry with this generation. God was angry with them. And the lesson is, we also might provoke God, we also might tempt God, we also might test God, we also might anger God today. Don't do that, he's saying. That's why he's quoting the passage. In verse 10, for those who say, the wilderness generation, they were saved, it's just that they didn't get all the blessings and the rewards they could have. That is one interpretation, one common interpretation. 
that they were saved, but they didn't receive all of the blessings of the rewards that they could have received if they had been more faithful. But they were faithful enough, and they believed and they were saved. So when they died, they were saved. Their sins were forgiven. That's one view. That view does not fit this chapter, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 12. It does not fit the Old Testament. It does not fit the things Moses says against the people while he's living. It doesn't fit the Psalms, Psalm 95, Psalm 78, Psalm 106. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It does not comport with an honest, objective reading of the Bible, any part of the Bible. It doesn't fit. Another view, people say they were saved and then unsaved. Saved and then unsaved. That's not the case either. If God saves us, he saves us forever, from beginning to end. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. So what is it? They pretended to be saved. They seemed to be saved because they are with Moses. They left Egypt. They are experiencing many benefits of God, many spiritual benefits of God, many miraculous benefits of God. So people think, okay, they are believers because they're not in Egypt, they're with Moses and they're going to Canaan and God says, let my people go. Didn't God say that? Let my people go. He called them my people. Yes, he called them my people. Why? Because he was establishing a covenant with them. Why? Because he was delivering them out of Egypt. Why? Because he was using Moses and their descendants and ancestors to bring Christ into the world to save us from our sins. In that sense, they were the covenantal people of God, but not in the redemptive, eternal, salvific sense. No, they were not. And how do we know? Well, in our passage, verse 10 says, God's angry. Verse 10 also says, they always go astray in their heart. He didn't say sometimes. He didn't say mostly. He says always. They always go astray. Can we be a true believer? Can we be true believers and always go astray? Be characterized by sin, rebellion, disobedience, wickedness? No. Here he says always. In their heart, he's saying, their heart always goes astray, and it is shown in how they react, how they live, what they do. They did not know my ways. Did not know my ways. Not at all. They claimed to know it, they claimed to believe that was what they alleged, but their life did not match up to it. He says, did not know my ways. They didn't follow the ways of the Lord. 
They followed their own ways, every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. Deuteronomy 12, 8. So verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Swore in my wrath. God swore an oath in his wrath. That means he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to renege. He is angry with these people forever. And they shall not enter my rest. What is the rest? Is the rest entrance in the land of Canaan? Typologically, yes. In terms of an illustration, a shadow and type, shadow and substance, yes. The land of Canaan signified that. But not everyone who entered Canaan actually was a true believer. For example, temporarily, didn't the man Achan in Joshua chapter 7, didn't he enter Canaan? Yes. Does that mean he's a true believer? No, not the way he was punished in Joshua chapter 7. No. He was able to enter, whereas Moses was not able to enter. But Moses was a true believer. He was saved until the very end, but not able to enter. Moses would be an example of not receiving the blessing of the land of Canaan as a reward. But not Achan. Achan entered, but then had to be put to death because of his sin in Joshua 7. What is the rest? The rest is eternal life. The rest is eternal life. This will become more evident in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Rest is an Old Testament way which our apostle uses to explain eternal life. Jesus himself <clears throat> expressed it this way in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew 11, Jesus says the following. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Christ says to come to him for rest. Is Christ talking about entering the land of Canaan? No, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternal life. And he quotes in verse 29, Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 6.16. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6.16 speaks of finding rest for the soul because Moses preached rest for the soul, because Joshua preached rest for the soul, because David preached rest for the soul. The prophets preached rest for the soul. What is that rest? Eternal life in Christ by believing in the death of Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, after putting forth 
this great salvation, after putting forth eternal life, abundant life, why would anybody turn away from it? Why would anybody say, that's not for me? It's for you, but not for me. It's good for you, but not for me. Why would anybody say, no, I want the world and the things of the world. I don't care about the world to come. There are many people who do that. Many who do it and many who pretend while they are in church. This is why the apostle, after citing the wilderness generation, returns to warning us. He warns us in verses 12 to 19. Not leaving the wilderness generation, but warning us alongside them. 3.12 Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. He calls us brethren, but he says, take care. Watch out. Be warned. There could be a false brother among us. He says, any one of you. He says it again in 13, any one of you. I call you all brethren. Earlier I called you holy brethren. However, if your fruit ends up being rotten, you actually have always had what? An evil, unbelieving heart. And it shows by falling away from the living God. Falling away by going away. Falling away by sinning away. Falling away by doing whatever you please and not believing and obeying the Word of God. Remember, in Galatians 2.2, 2, the apostle said that there were false brethren who sneaked in. False brethren. He actually modifies the word. He calls them brethren, but he says, listen, don't you know that these troublemakers, these heretics in your midst, that they are false? They sneaked in? Remember in 1 Corinthians 5.11, when a man persisted in his sin, 1 Corinthians 5.11, the apostle tells the Corinthians that that man is a so-called brother. Everybody called him brother because up to that point, they didn't know, they didn't see his sin. And then his sin persisted. They refused to act on it because they said, well, we've been calling him brother. He's a brother. But then Paul, the apostle, said, no, 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 no. He is persisting in his sin. Now I call him a so-called brother. And you better now deal with him as an unrepentant sinner. The same here. How can we prevent falling away? How can we cause someone who hears the word of God to truly believe it and not be a false brother. What is our responsibility? We're not talking about the sovereignty of God in this case in verses 
12 and 13, what we are talking about is human responsibility. What is our obligation with the people who are around us in our assembly? Verse 13. This is our responsibility. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our duty, our obligation, is to encourage one another day after day. Not once in a while, not occasionally, not whenever we feel like it, but always be prepared, always be ready, always seek for ways to encourage one another every day, daily, day after day, as long as it is still called today. Why? Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin will catch us off guard. Sin will come around the corner and surprise us, to tempt us and bring us down. We should not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin promises treasures and pleasures, but we must want to treasure the Word of God and eternal life. We must take pleasure in the Word of God and eternal life. The Word of God and eternal life, Christ himself must be our treasure and our pleasure, just as he was for Moses. He says, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the passing pleasures of Egypt, Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses did so, we must do so. 14, 14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Which means, if we don't hold fast until the end, hold fast firm until the end, then we have never become a partaker of Christ. It's not that we truly knew Christ and then did not know Christ. We never knew Christ in the first place. Endurance is necessary. Matthew 24, 13. He who endures till the end shall be saved. The testing of your faith produces endurance. James 1, 2 to 4. 15. He returns to the warning. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. While it is said, today. It's easy for us to gather, just as it was for the disobedient sons of Israel in the wilderness. It's easy to say, okay, we have a true prophet of God. He's proven himself to be that by his many miracles by the word of the Lord, by God's manifestation of answering his prayers to perform a miracle and then to refrain or to uh, restrain the miracle to put it away and make it disappear. 
We've seen that with Moses. Okay, he's a prophet of God. It's easy to approach Moses or approach the Word of God or approach the worship of God whenever we are the congregation worshiping God. It's easy to do it casually. It's easy to do it flippantly. It's easy to say, I already know what he's going to say. I already know what I'm going to hear. I already know what the routine is. I don't care. That's what they did. But he's saying here, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, there should be eagerness. There should be a, a strong passion, a strong desire to know the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, to believe the Word of God, to obey the Word of God, not to harden the heart. Hard heart equates to provocation of God. Hardness of heart equals provocation of God. We cannot falsely rely on the grace of God, on the love of God. God's love is not eternal. God's love is not automatic and eternal for those with a hard heart. In fact, his love is non-existent. His wrath is fully in existence. Verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? Who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? These are the people who should not have provoked him when they heard, because they came out of Egypt led by Moses. But all of them, he says, and by all, he's using it to mean mostly all. He, of course, doesn't mean to say Joshua and Caleb provoked God. He doesn't mean to say Miriam and Aaron persistently provoked God. They did on occasion. Aaron in making the golden calf and Miriam in opposing Moses in those two incidents. But not perpetually they didn't. They were believers. But the rest of the people? That's millions of people. Millions of people provoked God, though millions heard the word of God. Verse 17, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Why was God angry for 40 years? God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 7, 11. A God who has indignation every day. Against whom? Against the wilderness generation. Why? Because they heard the word and had a hard heart. So he punished them by making them die in the wilderness. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? He characterizes their behavior as disobedience. Verse 19, And so we see that they were not able to enter 
because of unbelief. Now he calls it unbelief. What was it? It was hardness of heart. It was an evil, unbelieving heart. It was falling away from the living God. It was being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It was provocation of God. It was angering God. It was disobedience. And it was unbelief. These are the unflattering ways, but truthful, honest ways, in which God describes that generation. And not only them, but everyone who does not remain faithful to Christ. Faithful the way he's describing it. Faithful theologically and morally. Faithful as Christ was, and faithful as the saints of old were. This is the way we should be. We should be the opposite of the wilderness generation. Not the same. Because if we are the same, there is no salvation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.